reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile, revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. Thanks, Brian. Um, and thank you, Ray, because look at that. It's pretty great. All right. If you think that's good, just wait for this sermon. Just joking. All right. Um, a quick drink real quick. Get us started. So we've been, as I mentioned before, going through this series on what it means for the church and for the people of God to be a community that's compelling. And honestly, like even as I've been kind of working behind the scenes and Andy and I kind of both of us brainstorming this series, it's been really wonderful. It's been really interesting to see how Peter, this individual in the New Testament, is, is speaking hope to a church that's going through such difficult times. And it's been beautiful to see just how the church can be something that does draw some kind of like intrigue from those who maybe otherwise wouldn't. But the interesting thing about what Peter is referencing directly here and what is the big elephant in the room of this whole letter that he's writing to this church is that they're not just like some super chill country club just, you know, having a great time, you know, talking about Jesus while knocking back PBRs or anything like that. Like, they're a church experiencing really severe persecution. They're being opposed because they're Christians. And so, as I'm working through this sermon throughout this past week, I had this question kind of pop into my head, which is what happens when the very things that we as Christians find deeply compelling, others see as offensive or distasteful or even like hateful, gross, reviling? I think it can be a really deflating experience I think there's something about like getting to understand God 
and getting to understand the gospel and even getting more like personally intimate with God. And we start to think, man, this is, this is the cure for the human condition. This is something beautiful and rich. And then for someone to see something that we see as so beautiful and they see little to no value in it, it can be a very deflating experience. And I think that in that experience can come this temptation where it's like, if people are going to, like, like what, what am I supposed to do if people mock me for, for being a Christian? What am I going to do if people mock me for the views and, and the things and the values that I hold? This past few weeks, we've been talking about a number of things that Peter's teaching this church that would be considered very countercultural. He's telling slaves to submit to their masters, but he's also saying, masters, you don't get to be cruel as your culture teaches you to be. Wives, you submit to your husbands, but husbands, you better know that you are expected to die for your wife if the time comes. What happens if we look at those things and we see them as compelling, but others see them as less than that? The temptation that I think exists in all of us is to say, okay, well, if you can't see it, then forget you. You know, you can kick rocks. If you can't see what's clearly wonderful in front of you, then I have no words. And Peter's actually saying the opposite of that. So there's a few things, a few points I'm going to try to make off of this passage. The first one is we shouldn't be surprised when we're mistreated or ridiculed, or slandered. And I have to say, that was a very difficult point for me to write down. And it's because of this. I think at least, I'm hoping at least a handful of, of the people here can kind of empathize with what I'm going to say. But there's some like phenomenon that exists in pockets of Christian circles all around, I think, America specifically. And it's kind of where like end times theology kind of blends into this like doomsday prep mentality. And like you just kind of start thinking like 10 years from now, Christians, it's going to be illegal to be a Christian. Churches closed down permanently. Bibles burned preach the gospel, thrown in prison. Like, I remember hearing this a lot, especially when I was, like, a young, like, high school, like, college-aged Christian. And it started to, like, mold and disciple me in some really unflattering ways that, you know, I'm, I'm going to get into this more down the road. And so I feel like I, 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 over the past few years as I've been walking with Jesus, there, there's been this unlearning process of, like, all right, I need to stop acting like I have this chip on my shoulder, like half of the world secretly hates me because I'm a Christian. Even the people who say that they care about me are just plotting my downfall. Like that was legitimately things that were kind of like growing in my brain around that time. And so it's difficult for me to say, well, it's not strange if there is some form of opposition for being a Christian. I'm, I'm, I have this deep fear of starting to fall back into that like paranoia that was so harmful to me as a younger guy. 
So why do I say it? I say it because it's all over the Bible. I say it because Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. I say it because Jesus said that I am your master and they're going to persecute and eventually murder me. So who are you to think that a servant should be above his master? I think it's 1 John that says, uh, don't be surprised if the world despises you. Now, even as I say that, I say it deeply anchoring myself in what Peter is actually saying, how he's framing this whole thing. Peter's saying, look, it's already happening. You're already receiving persecution. You don't have to go looking for it. What Peter's focus, on, focus is on is actually the way that they're intended to respond to this persecution. I feel like some almost like seek it out. I've, I've seen Christians who literally form their entire ministry around being as like rock the boat and as offensive and as inflammatory as possible because they believe that the more people they have throwing rocks at them, the more valid their ministry is. To that, I, it's completely ridiculous and unbiblical. And the reason I say that is because what is, what, is, uh, what is Peter saying in the beginning of this passage? First of all, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You can't have those things going around looking for fights. You can't have those things looking to offend and be as inflammatory as possible. And so again... I do feel this tension of like, man, I really don't want to sound off these alarms of like, watch out, everybody. The world's going to start burning Christians pretty soon. But I do think an honest response does, does, does require a little bit of reflection. I think that we can look around and see the culture kind of shifting around us in a way that is noteworthy. Because the fact is, living in the West, living in Western culture, we've been, we as Christians have been extremely privileged to hold a significant amount of influence around the culture. And that's a blessing. I think we're extremely blessed to have had that. But if you're looking at statistics and demographics that are starting to kind of unfurl around us, we're seeing that this type of Christian identification that was usually really, really commonplace is starting to dwindle. We have more and more people in younger generations who are ambivalent about church, who have no interest in going, who are more likely to identify as non-Christian or non-religious at all. I don't see this as a reason to start throwing rocks at the culture, but I do think it's a necessary thing to at least consider. Because as we look at, I mean, I would, I would even encourage us to look at just a few groups in the New Testament time period. Because Paul talks about the Jews and says that they, are, they oppose Christianity because they find Jesus as an offensive figure because he was cursed and hanged on a cross. So they would have difficulty with Jesus. And the Greeks, they're, they're philosophers. They're, they're a bunch of smarty pants. So they see the Christian religion as 
like a peasant's religion, very uneducated. And the Romans, the Romans, they saw state religion as really important, having that unified temple worship. Christians not going to temple worship was threatening to the entire social order. And so then it should make sense when we as Christians are going to hold on to values that are explicitly Christian when we should have some type of headbutting and a little bit of opposition with people around us who no longer share those same values. It doesn't mean that we should seek them out. It doesn't mean that we should, you know, have this, you know, stark middle finger shaking fist to the rest of the world. It actually means the opposite. So that brings us to our second point. Before I get to it, though, I, I try to do a little bit of, you know, I try to get a little bit of crowd participation going whenever I can. So if there was a single verb that summarized the life of a Christian, what, what do you think a word for that would be? Just throw something out. Love. That's great. I love love. Love's really good. All right, give me another one. Grace. Grace. Okay. What else? Service. Service. Okay. All right, give me some verbs. Do. Do stuff. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Okay. Long suffering. Long suffering. Okay. Was that? Love is a verb, God. Love. Yeah. Okay. Love is a verb. Yes. <laughs> so there's a lot we could think of, right? Sticking believe is a big one. Repent, another. But the one I'm thinking of for this specific passage is actually bless. My second point is this. We are called to be a blessing. We're called to be a blessing. So what does that mean? Well, we, what it means is exactly what Peter is telling us in this passage here. He's saying there will be a time. It might be right now. It could be in the future when someone is going to criticize, ridicule, mistreat, mock, or even just maybe not pay you the respect that you feel like you're entitled to. And here's how you respond. You pray to God for that person. And you pray that God would give them the favor and grace that he has saved for his children. That's how you bless someone. I'm going to say that one more time. It means that when we're disliked, when we're criticized, when, when this time comes and, you know, everyone's throwing uh, the, their copies of, like, the government says you have to turn in all copies of Kirk Cameron's Left Behinds to be burned at your local, local supermarket. When this persecution just ramps up against us, when the world turns their back, they call our values outdated, when they call us uneducated, when they say that Christians are fools and they don't know any better, the response that Peter is pleading, no, commanding us to have is that we would pray to God that God would show them the grace and favor that he has saved for his children. That's a big ask, Peter. That's a big ask, but we can see this. This isn't a foreign idea. In fact, we see it in Jesus, the central figure of the Christian faith. 
the end of Jesus' life, he was being, he had just been beaten up and tortured, hit with all types of horrible tools that should probably never even have existed, just meant for human suffering. He was nailed to a couple pieces of wood. He was being mocked and made fun of and spit on. And his words, his prayer over these people was what? Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, people have misinterpreted this. They've said, well, when he said that they didn't know what they're doing, they were actually innocent. No, the opposite's true. They weren't innocent. They were guilty. They were guilty of one of the, basically the worst sin you could be guilty of, which is to kill an innocent man. And Jesus' response to them was, man, I still have such rich compassion over you. I still pray that God showers favor and grace over you. I think this also shows us how to, how to bless others without falling into this trap of becoming punching bag Christians. Now, I know, because I, I, I know some people who, who wince when they hear the phrase, bless those who curse you. Because at times, the idea of blessing those who curse you becomes warped into this teaching that basically says, no matter what people are doing to you, you just have to endure it and just get beaten down and suffer and deal with whatever it is because that's what love is. I think the worst manner I've ever heard this like false teaching expressed is the idea that a, that a wife whose husband is being physically abusive should basically keep from running or, or avoiding this, this guy because, whoa, I'm sorry that, you know, this guy's being so abusive to you, but how will you show him the love of Jesus if you don't continue to endure what he's, what he's showing you? I think it's such a horrible and harmful and unchrist-like way to understand this. Because honestly, if we think about it, the prayer that we're pleading to God is that God would show someone who is undeserving grace and favor like he would his own child. If one of God's own children was using violence and abuse against someone in their in their care, do you think God's care would look like, ah, you know, I love them so much, I'm going to keep letting them do what they're doing. Could you imagine being a, being a parent and responding that way to your child, forgetting a call from your kid's school that they were bullying another kid, and you're like, you know, I just love Junior so much that I, I'm going to keep him from all consequences. That's not actually love. So when people try to warp this idea of blessing those who curse you as becoming a punching bag Christian, we have to remember that the favor that we're praying that God shows the person that is offending us can sometimes look like consequences, can sometimes look like the cause and effect for evil actions. Accountability and love are certainly not mutually exclusive. In fact, they need each other. So this brings us back to this same idea. 
And it's still hard. It's still hard to think that when we're actively being ridiculed and criticized for doing something that we believe in our hearts is good, that we were actually supposed to plead that God would care for this person. It's not easy. It's not. But I hope that we find some encouragement with our last point, which is there's nothing we can lose there's nothing we can lose. I was talking to, uh, to my fiance, Annie, last night about this sermon, and we were both kind of talking about what it's like to grow up in these types of Christian circles where they teach this like, kind of paranoid talk about deadly and violent persecution. And we talked about one of the reasons it bothered us so deeply is that it seems to be really deeply rooted in fear and not genuine love for the gospel or for Christ. It seems to have a lot of fear and potentially even like this hostility against the outside world kind of baked into it. Like, uh, you know, I, I told, I was at uh, this little youth group, little youth small group that we do on Saturday nights, and I shared about my, my rapture left behind dream, and uh, it ended up kind of fueling this conversation, and uh, myself and Danielle, the other leader, we put on this sermon that we found that was 10 steps for what to do if you get left behind in the rapture. Uh, I'm just glad a pastor had the foresight to make a sermon like that, honestly. Um, but... Uh, and please, this is not a church-wide affirmation of the theology of the rapture. I just have to say that right now. Like, everything I say is not confirmed or affirmed by Mission Church. So, Andy, don't get, don't, don't cut my mic off. No problem, man. I got you. I got you. Um, so, the sermon was very interesting. He, he basically says, you know, uh, so you woke up and the world got raptured around you. Here's what you do. First things first, don't panic. And I was like, all right, that's pretty good practical advice. If, I, if the first was panic, I'd be like, whoa, dude, come on. What are you saying? So don't panic. The like steps like two through five were basically like get yourself right with the Lord, like ask for forgiveness, get a Bible, find other Christians. Like, and I'm like, all right, I'm following, I'm following. Like, you know, it's, it's placing Christ at the center of it. And uh, I think that's really valuable. The next steps were when <laughs> it kind of turned a little bit sideways, where it was essentially like, all right, next, you have to leave the city. Like, get out of the city. The city's where everything's going to go, going to go real wild. And then you got to live off the land. You got to, you know, just kind of wait things out because the world's just going to go crazy and you just got to wait until everything kind of gets quiet and then you can kind of re-enter. And, you know, we kind of went down that rabbit trail. And as I'm watching this, I'm even saying to like the, the, the teenage girls that I'm watching this with and Danielle, our co-leader, I was like, all right, we, I don't want to just make fun of this dude. Like that's not the point of what we're doing. I want to try to understand, like let's, I want to see what his values are, what the core of what he's saying is, and then let's process it together. And so as we talked through it, it kind of got to like, this, there's this tremendous fear in it. They're not actually 
like engaging with a world that's going through chaos and that's about to get really opposed to Christianity and to the church. All of a sudden, the main goal is endurance and survival and just keeping, keeping yourself alive in difficult times. And the irony is that Peter is telling them the exact opposite. Peter is saying, yeah, people are going to oppose you. Sometimes it'll cost you your dignity. Other times it will cost you everything. And you know what? That's okay. Because there's nothing they can take from you. They can take your dignity. They can take your reputation. They can take your pride. They can take your breathing. And you won't lose a thing. They can't take anything from you. And that's the beauty of all of this, is that Peter's encouragement is the opposite of fear. It's confidence. He's saying if you are striving to honor God and to bless people, even when they are not respecting and applauding you for it, there's nothing they can do to take a thing from you. I mentioned a few sermons ago that there's this tension that we feel where it's like, but John, like, if we're Christians, then we're the children of God. Like, if we're God's children, then don't we have dignity? Like, don't, don't, aren't we worthy of respect if we're Christians? And the answer is yes, we have dignity. We, ha we are worthy of respect. But just like Jesus, we don't get to use our dignity and our self-respect to lord over others, but we actually lay it all down for others. Rather than seeking to preserve our lives, we lay our lives down and we live truly sacrificially out of love for our neighbors and for the stranger. Because even in our death, there's triumph, just as in the death of Jesus, there was triumph. And even in our suffering, there's glory, just as in Jesus' suffering, he found glory. So now we ask the question that we've asked to conclude pretty much all of our sermons so far this summer. How is this idea compelling? And that's a great question. We're talking about suffering and having to endure all these difficult times, basically saying that people are going to get to say and do terrible things to us, and we just have to pray that God loves them more. It doesn't sound compelling at the surface. But I'll say this is compelling because in a world where there is no gospel, the one who suffers is the one who loses. In a world without a gospel, the good that you do is only as valuable as your ability to maintain that good, which means that eventually you're going to have to make sacrifices to keep what you're doing alive. In a world without a gospel, truly selfless, sacrificial love is not strategic, and it's not sustainable. 
In a world with no gospel, the one who wins is the one who's strongest, and the one who suffers is the one who comes last. But in a world that has been touched by the gospel that we would argue we are living in today, truly sacrificial love, the love of Jesus, is the love that is undefeated. We can believe in a love that can't be destroyed by anything, not by a gun and not by a word. Because we hope in a God who has promised us just that. Many of us know the idea of uh, being more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors in Christ. But if we read that whole passage, Paul is actually saying the ones who are more than conquerors are the ones who are being defeated and harmed by persecution. Being more than conquerors isn't just a sign in how mighty and strong all Christians are. It actually means that just as Jesus received glory not from a crown of gold, but from a crown of thorns, we will receive glory as we struggle to bless even when we're torn down for it. It's a beautiful quote that I think of that a dude wrote in about the year 200, very early church history. He was a philosopher. He was a smart guy in the Roman Empire who was converted to Christianity wrote for a couple decades about all the interesting things he thought about Christianity, and then he had his head cut off for that same faith. And he wrote, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. They can kill us, but they can't take anything else from us. There is an everlasting glory that can't be touched by any evil force around us because God is holding us perfectly and has promised to do so until the end. And I will say, this can still be hard, can still be discouraging, and I want to offer comfort. One of the biggest things that sucks about suffering is that it feels lonely can feel very isolating. Feel like we're standing in an island by ourselves. But we should remember that we don't go into anything difficult, easy, or medium without the presence of Jesus with us. There's this great quote that goes like this. There is no evil to be faced that Christ does not face with us. There is no enemy that Christ has not already conquered. There is no cross to bear that Christ has not already borne for us and does not today bear with us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, God, we pray, uh, we pray gratitude and thanksgiving, Lord, for uh, just the protection that you have over us, for the love that you have for us. And Lord, all of us here come from different walks of life. We're all spending our time in different areas and circles and spaces. Lord, I don't know what this stuff looks like for all of us. But I do pray that you would give us like a deep strength and courage that we can bless and we can love because by you, we have been blessed and we have been loved. 
And that even as our strength is weak, your strength is perfect. And I pray that you would encourage us with this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to transition real quick to the Lord's Supper and confession. And as I, as I even finish the sermon, you guys, I need to confess. I can, I can talk until I'm blue in the face about the suffering for the sake of doing good. I can talk about how valuable it is, how Christian it is, how important it is. But I realized just this week that as much as I value suffering while doing good things, I've also realized that if I'm washing dishes in my house and a roommate leaves a dirty bowl on the counter, I don't really feel like suffering anymore. <laughs> I immediately get like this feeling of like, ah, I'm, I'm entitled to better than this. I can talk about how much of a privilege it is to be disrespected for doing good. But I also recognize that in my own personal life, I've acquired like a pretty notorious reputation for being very bad at accepting feedback and criticism because I tend to get very defensive and take things too personally. In the words of uh, Kendrick Lamar, I guess I still have some healing to do myself. It's a humbling and, I think, universal experience for Christians that we see how beautiful and good our God is, and we also recognize how completely incapable we are of giving him the love that he deserves. It's like recognizing that God deserves the whole world, and I can barely hold a handful of sand before him. It's humbling. But the good news is that we don't believe in, nor do we preach, do better sermons. In the beginning of Peter's letter, he says that he's writing to everyone who has even a mustard seed size of faith, and that for all of them, they don't have a ladder that they have to climb to get to the goodness of God. They don't have a checklist of obedience that they have to complete before they can call themselves righteous. But that through that faith, they are protected by a great and perfect shield of God's love and God's care. And that he's committed to growing us and perfecting us every day. So take heart. Maybe we're bad at blessing people. I am. Maybe we're bad at suffering. Yeah, I am too. But there's grace. There's absolutely grace in the dwelling place of God. And so that leads us to two things, the Lord's Supper and confession. Our confession is where we present to God all the things that we should have done this week that we didn't do all the things that we shouldn't have done that we did do, all the ways that we did not love God the way that he deserves to be loved. And we pray these things and we confess these things, not so we can hold our hand over a fire, but so that we can receive God's grace and forgiveness, which he promises to those who confess their sins before him. And the way that we celebrate that forgiveness and anticipate the time that we will sit with him in perfect intimacy and community is by taking the Lord's Supper, by taking the broken bread, and by drinking the wine and remembering the sacrifice and the love of Jesus that is still growing in perfection until that day we would see him face to face. 
So I will, uh, I'll pray one more time, and then we'll have two minutes of silence for confession. And then uh, feel free to come up afterwards and receive the Lord's Supper. Mike and Josh will lead us in some songs of worship, and we'll also worship through financial giving in the back, which just supports the church and allows us to keep doing all the stuff that we're doing. So let's pray. Father, I, uh, I feel like the older I get, the more comfortable I'm getting with this idea of confession it still feels uncomfortable to me. It still feels fearful because I'm always afraid that I'm not going to get the forgiveness that I really long for. But it's a promise you've made for all of us. No matter how royally we've messed things up this past week, this past month, all the unrepented sins that flew so far under our radar, we believe in you. We believe that your son has worked perfectly on our behalf. We believe that our sins have been cast as far away as the east is from the west. And we find our hope in that. And we hope in not just the love that you've shown us today, but the love that is continuing to be perfected as our hearts are growing closer and closer to you. Help us to walk with you, but for all the times that we don't, give us the humility to speak honestly to you and help us to speak right now.